Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Ralph Youngman of the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry and LMU Munich, and we discuss how we got interested in science. Growing up as a kid in the 80s, I really was sort of... Um, sort of a big fan of MacGyver and Knight Rider. The pros of grant writing. Yes, there really are some. So it's really important to force yourself to write a research grant because that forces you to think about what you actually want to do. His availability as a supervisor. Uh, the thing is, whenever you want to talk to me, you can do that whenever you want. 24-7 more or less, right? And the most frightening time in his career. I felt like an imposter almost, right? So coming here saying, okay, we're going to do this single molecule fluorescent stuff here with, with all sorts of applications, and I knew it didn't work at this point. <laughs> all in this episode of The Microscopist. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole and welcome to this episode of The Microscopist. Today, I'm joined by Ralph Youngman from the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry at the University of Munich. Ralph, how are you today? Very good. Good to see you again, Peter. Uh, I've, got, I've got a ton of questions. Uh, I, I, I've seen you give keynote talks uh, at different conferences such as MMC, uh, MMC, EMC. I've given you, I think, different talks at different meetings, ELMI. <laughs> but... What got you into science to start with? Ah. <laughs> so, I mean, growing up as a kid in the 80s, I really was sort of um, sort of a big fan of MacGyver and Knight Rider and all these TV series from the 80s, right? If you look back at them today, seeing David Hasselhoff with his own sort of woman <laughs> uh, pullover is a little bit sort of weird, but back in the day, it was cool. And it was really sort of sort of MacGyverish type things that I thought, well, I really want to do something practical, experimental, maybe build something um, that, that other people could, could use eventually. <laughs> but then in the early 90s, uh, when my dad bought me my first computer, <laughs> I really got into uh, computers. And so initially, I actually thought, well, after, after high school graduation in 2000, I wanted to uh, sort of study computer science. <laughs> and so I actually enrolled in computer science and physics, for the matter of fact, because I, I liked physics in school. Yep. And then I quickly realized that uh, computer science is not really about computers. <laughs> right? it's, about, it's about algorithms and programming and stuff. And I didn't like that too much back in the day. That has changed a bit. But um, the physics seemed so crazy to me that I just stuck around with it um, at that point. <laughs> I, I just love the fact that it was Knight Rider, MacGyver, and... Also A-team and stuff like this, but you know the usual suspects. <laughs> I never heard you Dane as a David Hasselhoff fan, but... David Hasselhoff was really popular in Germany, you know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> More so than anywhere else in the world, most likely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you get a lot of stick in the UK if you said you were a big David Hasselhoff fan. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> So you enjoyed the physics side of life, I, I guess, and coming through. So when you finish your degree in physics, you, I, I would say your big impacts is in the world of life science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm very much research orientated around DNA paint for microscopy purposes. But how, how, did you, how did you then start to move from the physics into becoming the MacGyver of a microscopy? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question, actually, because I actually got rid of biology in 10th grade in school because I didn't like it that much. <laughs> All sort of, I can never tell apart any sort of trees and plants from each other. And so I thought, well, let's not do that. But then molecular biology or cell biology is different, obviously, right? So it really started with my diploma thesis work. So I still did, got a diploma back in the day before bachelor and master's were introduced in Germany. So I did my diploma research actually uh, in the United States, in, in California, working with uh, Paul Hensman on atomic force microscopy. And so that was really the first time I always liked imaging methods, right? So seeing something sort of had a visual appeal to me more than anything else. And working with Paul back in the day, I thought I'd do some atomic force microscopy development. This project, he said, well, he's not too much into high-speed AFM development anymore, but he's really interested in bones, right? And figuring out how bone fractures and what happens in osteoporotic patients and stuff like this. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. Well, why not, why not look at this? And so that's how I got into sort of biomaterials, so to say, or biomechanics back, back in the day. And that year at Santa Barbara really sort of, um, sort of got me hooked on sort of functional imaging in uh, in the bio in the life sciences basically yeah. so I mean, afm is also you know, i guess is a very physics orientated technique uh, i i know biophysicists will be using afm but mm -hmm. uh, actually for the for the general audience what is afm ah so, so atomic force microscopy works like a record player more or less right so many people most likely will not realize how that works anymore so this sort of analogy will come out of date at some point but it's basically a very sharp needle that goes over a surface and gets deflected based on the topography of the surface and this deflection of this cantilever basically in the end is detected by a laser beam that bounces off the surface onto a photodiode and so you can record really uh, sort of small distances in X, Y, and um, uh, most importantly in Z. So it's, it's, it's a super resolution technique, if you want, right? It's much higher resolution than optical microscopy. Um, but it's, it's limited in its applications in cell biology, obviously, because it's a surface technique. Yeah. I, I, I just love the analogy to the vinyl record player. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the, the music of science at that point plays just a bit. But I guess you're not moving the cell around. <laughs> That's true. No, you're oscillating the cantilever, but you can hear that in water if you have good ears, right? So it's a really annoying 11 kilohertz um, <laughs> if you sit next to it. <laughs> I don't know. So you went from your physics diploma uh, degree, which I presume is in Munich. Well, that was in in, in uh, Saarbrücken actually. So it's a very so, so I grew up in 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 the most one of the most western parts in, in Germany called Saarland. So it's the it's the smallest non-city state in Germany. It's about a million inhabitants. And so I studied physics there, and then I moved to Santa Barbara for my diploma research, and then for my PhD I went to Munich. So that was um, in two thousand and seven or so. Yeah. So how did you find the move? I mean, you must have been quite young moving over to the States. Was that daunting? Was it, was it exciting? What so was the it? move to the US was exciting. I always, I always liked sort of United States. Uh, I mean, growing up with the TV series and stuff like this, realizing that Knight Rider actually took place in California, right, as the most of the 80s series did. 
Um, so that was really easy for me. And so, I mean, if you've ever spent more time in Southern California, you know that people are really open and easygoing. And um, so that was a great time. And so the cultural shock actually, funnily enough, came when I did the move to Munich, right? Uh, which is obviously in Bavaria, south, south of Germany. And um, it felt like, so if you have, okay, maybe an analogy, if you go to a store in Munich, right, uh, you don't necessarily feel super welcome in the beginning when you come from the, from, from California, because in, if you go into a store in Santa Barbara, for example, say, oh, how, how are you doing house life, right? So you get this chit chat in the beginning, yeah. uh, making you comfortable and say, can I help you with something? And so if you go into a, in, in, into a store in Munich, you have the feeling you're a foreign particle, right? That's just, so what are you doing here, right? You, you want to buy something, why? <laughs> and so this needed some getting used to in the beginning, but at some point I realized that uh, if you sort of respond with a sort of similar grumpiness, uh, then sort of people sort of uh, warm up and it, it actually becomes nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember the same scenario, just in the UK, moving from the Midlands to the to a university in the South mm -hmm. and going in a shop and it would be polite to go in and say good morning as you walked into the shop. And I remember the looks. <clears throat> Sometimes it was one of complete dismay. Other times it was look up, I don't recognize you. Who are you? <laughs> and you realize, yeah, it just, yeah, you just go and don't say anything. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I don't, friendliness has a lot. But you never saw Kit then when you went to California. You, I presume being as a big night rider, were you always. Yeah, I have not actually, for the matter of fact, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's still on the list. The one or one things to do before you die, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so you went, okay, from Germany to California to Munich with a big change. When did you start doing biology, hardcore biology? Or? Well, hardcore, you could argue I'm, I'm, I'm still not really doing hardcore biology these days. And I will probably say that, I mean, I'm not a biology, but we are biologists by training. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm, <laughs> that I'm doing hardcore biology. It's, um, it really started more in the PhD when I moved into the field of DNA nanotechnology. So back in the day at, at UC Santa Barbara, uh, there was a coffee table in the lab that had a really nice window view to the Pacific Ocean. So if you've ever been to Santa Barbara and have seen the campus of UCSB, it, it doesn't get better than that. It's right at the coast of the Pacific, right? <laughs> um, and I read an article in Nature in 2006 that had a smiley face on the cover. And I thought, well, that's crazy. So what is this? And so I read the title says, okay, uh, making nanoscale objects out of DNA, right? Um, and I read the article and thought, this is really crazy. How can you do something like this? And so that really got me, got me uh, interested in the field of, of, of DNA nanotechnology. And then I looked up basically labs in Germany where, who were doing that at the time. And it was really only one lab, uh, Fritz Simmel at, uh, at the University of Munich. And um, I approached him uh, if there would be a space for a PhD. And that's how I got in, into this in the end. So this is really my first sort of interactions with molecular biology as a physicist, right? <laughs> and so first attempts were, <clears throat> uh, let's say, uh, mediocrely successful. <laughs> but uh, I, I got the hang of it over time. And um, so that, that sort of making structures and interacting with objects using programmable DNA is really uh, what got me sort of hooked to this more biologically orientated research, I would say. How did you find the adaptation moving from physics, which is a semi-exact science, to <laughs> biology, which is certainly not an exact science? Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, interestingly, if you read an, uh, a news article from my PhD advisor back in the day in 2010 about why DNA nanotechnology is so successful with groups coming from a physics background is, that is no matter how sloppy you are in a molecular biology lab, it will always work because it's so robust, right? <laughs> and so I, I found that strange in the beginning in the end because I was the only student doing that in his lab. And so I thought, hmm, <laughs> but um, that, uh, he's actually right. And I think um, you, you need to get away with sort of a certain obsession of OCD to some extent that you have as a physicist. And I have that actually a lot. We can talk about that with cars later on if you want. Um, to say you, you, you need to be really careful and really exact in certain places uh, in a biology research lab, but not in many others. And uh, I think the importance is to find out where you need to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. So all in all, I think it was not such a big problem to, to venture into that field because I always had fantastic collaborators teaching me how to do stuff in that area. And so after, so you picked up your biology, you've got your physics background to so the nuclear cases. Am I right that you then went back to the US? So yeah, then, so after the PhD ended in 2010, um, I looked at, I made the usual trip that, that every sort of <laughs> PhD student at the end does go to a conference and then travel around and visit labs uh, where you are interested in for a postdoc. And I was pretty determined not to go into a lab that does DNA nanotechnology because everybody told me, you need to do something different in your postdoc, right? You need to go somewhere else. And so I looked at other labs, more imaging labs. So this single molecule fluorescence stuff came at the end of my PhD, actually through a collaboration with Philip Tinefeld's lab uh, in, in Munich. Uh, so in the beginning, I, I still did AFM on uh, DNA origami structures. And then at the very end, also, when we developed sort of DNA paint, that was at the end of my PhD already back in the day, I got into fluorescence. And so I looked at a few fluorescence labs in, in the States, but I also looked at two labs doing DNA nanotechnology because I knew them from collaborations and conferences in the field. And that was William Shi and Pang Yin at the Wies Institute at Harvard University in Boston. And that experience was just so much better than any other, I'm not going to say names of other labs that I visited, but it was just so much better than anything else I've experienced that I said, I want to work there as a postdoc in this institute, in this environment. And so that's, that's how I sort of <laughs> stuck around in the field, so to say. So, so people there didn't do any super resolution microscopy, right? So DNA nanotech lab. And they were sort of crazy enough to say, okay, this sounds interesting. Why don't you come over and do that here? Right. And so this is how that, how that started. Quite amazing. You kind of, you, you, you picked your PhD almost by finding what you, you had a passion for. You, you picked your, post, your postdoc over in the US by finding a lab that fitted what your objectives were. And they, they took a gamble on that side, very successful gamble. Uh, it's quite good to hear that you, while we were on the US and being in the US, you sent me some photos and actually- ah. <laughs> Yeah, so that is back from my, diploma thesis, you see it on the license plates at Santa Barbara, right? So I thought, I mean, I'm, I'm always a little bit of, I've always been a little bit of a car enthusiast, if you want, or in, in the UK, you would say petrol head, right? Uh, so I really like like the old Top Gear and Grand Tour and stuff like this. Yes. I still enjoy watching that. And so I thought the one and only time ever in my life where I'm probably going to buy a convertible is in the United States because it never rains uh, in, in California, <laughs> so it seldomly does. 
And so I, I bought the cheapest and I thought most manly convertible, which is in Mazda Miela, right? Or an MX-5 known in, in, in Europe. Uh, and um, so uh, that's that's what I did. So I opened the roof when I bought it and I closed it when I sold it again after that year. So this was the parking spot at UCSB, uh, um, the right, right at the ocean. So I still get sort of, uh, sort of uh, the, the, the feelings that this is, uh, one of the nicest places on the on earth I've been so far. Yeah. So I have the ne the next picture maybe completely unrelated, but it looks semi related. Yeah. So by the way, I actually I do quite like MX fives. <laughs> I mean, it's taking up the old British um, um, uh, sort of um, Triumph Herald type things, right? Yeah. And <laughs> done by Japanese, where the car works actually, right? <laughs> but um, you say it doesn't work if it's British. No, no, that's not true. But it, it, <laughs> might, it might break more often then. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. But, um, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so the next picture is ah yes, so that that was uh, one day where uh, sort of same car, same parking spot. Just oh, so, so wait a minute. This looks like a broken wind, broken it window. Side, it's still side window, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, what an un unintelligent thief, right? Because it's a convertible. The roof is open. Why do you need to smash the window <coughs> to then realize there's nothing in it, right? There's a really crappy stereo that they didn't take. <laughs> And uh, so I thought, well, that's, that's really not so, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that happened. <laughs> that, that's what was, when, when I saw that, I thought, they can't just smash the window to get into your soft top. It, it's just the roof wasn't stuff. even closed, right? I mean, it was open. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe it was not for, I mean, maybe they just didn't like the, uh, the red color. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, just, yeah, God smacked it. That's bizarre, isn't it? Uh, upsetting, though. Certainly at the uh -huh. time, you must be pretty disappointed by the whole thing that that had actually happened to you. Um, <laughs> what was the best thing about you living over in the US? Um, I think a couple of things. I mean, it's really hard to say. I mean, the, I have the feeling that People in the United States and the West Coast and the East Coast are obviously a little bit different, right? So Santa Barbara versus Boston is quite a change, right? <laughs> so Boston being more European, you would argue, right? A little bit more serious uh, in many, many perspectives. Um, I always had the feeling that there was a let's go do it mentality in the United States, much more than it is in, in Germany. So Germany is very conservative um, with all goods and bads that that sort of uh, accompanies that. So I always liked the, um, the sort of freshness and motivation about the people that are saying, okay, this is something I have never thought of and it sounds crazy, let's just do it, right? So uh, <laughs> let's not think too much about it. But maybe that's also part of living in a science bubble in the end. Um, is it just living in that sort of bubble over there or is the funding mechanisms different that enables them to be, give them more freedom to, to shoot mm. the things that are Yes, Maybe. although I would say that the funding mechanisms in Germany are actually nowadays better than in the United States. And so it depends obviously at which places you are, right? But I, I think access to funding in Germany is actually easier than in the United States, right? And so many of the labs, most of the labs in the States don't come with, with, with core funding. And um, I think uh, 
that has also advantages and disadvantages. I would say it's really important to force yourself to write a research grant because that forces you to think about <laughs> what you actually want to do, which is sometimes not such a bad idea. On the other hand, if you have sort of core funding that you can spend uh, independently on the project, uh, you can just say, okay, this is really interesting. I just thought of this, let's try this out, right? And see where this goes. Um, I think a combination of both is good. So I think what's ideal is maybe a certain amount of core funding that lets you keep the thing running and yeah. sort of venture into directions that you're interested in. But that also the need to write grant applications, I think, helps you to focus <laughs> in certain areas. Yeah. yeah, and maybe extend the lab, therefore, as well, which is, which is a good thing. Talking of which, how big is your lab? I look at your website and there was a, I stopped scrolling. It's too big, yeah. <laughs> Although I have to say this is fluctuating, right? So my, I mean, the lab is completely funded by uh, third-party grants at this point. So there's there's really literally no core funding. There's one PhD student that's core funded from the university, but everything else is 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 third-party grants. And um, so it's twenty something people at the moment, and uh, it's still manageable. I'm a little bit of. I would say it's, you need to ask my students about this, but I could say it's, it's sometimes I'm a bit of a micromanager because of my OCD things, right? <laughs> but um, the, the larger the lab becomes, the less so you can be involved in all of the projects, which I really like. And so I think midterm, it will probably shrink a little bit again, <laughs> for sure, when sort of, there's a problem with these funding uh, sort of periods, right? So you have this couple of years of funding, then the lab really gets big, and then all of a sudden it stops and it shrinks down. So I have this fear that, at some point, all the grants run out and no new grants will come in and then it's just going to be me. And, uh... <laughs> and you'd have lost your lab skills by then. Oh, that's already happened. So you, you, you realize that at the point where I really like tweaking microscopes and stuff like this. And, and also, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still a big sort of computer um, sort of uh, guy. And so I'm probably one of the <laughs> few PIs and, and the students are always sort of, I would say, astonished uh, that uh, the your boss installs your computer for you, right? <laughs> and um, so I realized that uh, sort of I, I'm try, starting to lose my experimental skills when I said, uh, I went into the lab and said, oh, we need to readjust this laser coupling for this laser line and this microscope. And students, mm, maybe it's not such a good idea if you do that. <laughs> Let us do that, right? <laughs> so, okay, I thought, well, that's not, now it's the time that um, I probably should not do that. Oh, that do means that. I haven't seen you in action. <laughs> no, I can do this. And then, then it kind of shows that you, know, if you ask them to do something, they can't say no, because you know, they know that you, that you know that you could do it. <laughs> but then I'm, I'm getting really nervous because right, there's this competition about, ah, you get 80% of coupling efficiency with this laser. Who gets 85% and so on? And I might actually lose that better nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I looked at that number of staff and because they are all your close lab, so you know, these aren't things you can delegate and positions of delegation. So report back. These, these are research projects, your research projects, their research, your research projects. Mm -hmm. How much time do you spend with each and every one? Or is it a case you have more group meetings or subgroup meetings? How do you actually seriously manage that mm -hmm. number of research projects going on at once? So I think the advantage is that most of the projects are not... 100% distinct from each other. There's always a certain technology component that's sort of uh, the same for projects or some certain techniques that people would use, right? And so we've, we're going back and forth with group meetings and subgroup meetings and stuff like this. But my usual 
uh, thing is, whenever you want to talk to me, you can do that whenever you want, 24-7 more or less, right? Um, and so it's, it's subgroup meetings, so two subgroups and uh, a group meeting uh, every week, basically. So subgroup one week, another subgroup the second week, and then group meeting in the third week. And then there's one-on-ones and focus meetings with people for, for projects. And so I still tend to be, <laughs> to be involved in, in most of these, but um, at this point, it's still manageable. It might change in the future. <laughs> I, obviously, it's, I, and if you look at your publication track record, you know, it's been prolific, I would say, in recent years, uh, and very successful, high-impacting publications. As I say, we all follow your work really closely. Uh, it's very, it's awesome, but it, that's a lot of stuff, lot of creativity in where this is going. And sometimes it's whole new stuff. Other times it's iterations. But you still have to be very inventive to take that next iterative step. Even what do you do outside of work to balance that? <laughs> so, so, so first, thanks. Very flattering, but I have to say it's it's much of the creativity comes from the people actually, right? And so I was really fortunate. I mean, I'm going to come to the outside of work stuff in a second, but I just want to get this sort of out. And I think you have a picture of some guy sitting on a, on a, on a, on a, on a park bench there, right? Yeah. So <laughs> this was basically the first crew <clears throat> at the end in Boston that all came with me to start the lab in Germany. So they were all master's students, funnily enough, all Germans. <laughs> I realized that it's sort of, nowadays it's, it's, it's white male dudes, right? It's not really gender balanced. <laughs> it is now, but um, so the, I mean, a big part of the success of the lab in the beginning was really the first wave of PhD students that I had, right? They basically set up the lab without me, right? So knowing already stuff that they learned in, in Boston took that to Germany and so you could argue we we hit the floor running uh, when the lab started in 2015. Um, so that was really instrumental and so I'm still sort of... So they came over from the US with you? Yes, so it's a little bit of a weird uh, setup in that sense, so it's, they're all German. <laughs> I think most of them are actually Bavarian, no, not all of them, two are Bavarian and two are from Swabian. Swabia. Um, so they... Um, sort of approached my PhD advisor, they, they knew that I was a postdoc in the States and they wanted to do a semester abroad, basically. And they, they really were interested in sort of DNA nanotech and imaging and stuff like this. And then um, Joe, so who's actually the guy uh, in the green shirt, they have sort of approached uh, me first and said, is there a way to do a master thesis project uh, in Boston somehow? And I thought, well, from my side, yes, but I'm not the one who makes the calls, right? I need to ask William and Pang if they, if they, are, if they are okay with that. And they said, well, why not? I mean, um, sure, he should come over and, and do stuff. And um, this was very successful. And then other people sort of came, came thereafter <laughs> and, um, Sort of, I I was lucky to to get them as the first PhD student back to back to Munich. Then, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, how many years ago was did, was this 2014 that they all came it back? Was 15, they came back. Yeah, so within a few months from each other. So the lab started officially in December 2014, but really sort of was up and running early 2015. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's quite exceptional uh, to start your own lab and actually have a pretty good core group. They're all very trained, skilled. No, that was perfect, but I didn't need to do any interviews and uh, I knew them, they knew me. <laughs> yeah. This. Ah, yeah, so that's actually <laughs> sort of again back to Santa Barbara time. So that's a picture of Paul Hansmar's lab in, in, at UCSB and I always thought 
when I um, started, and I'm going to talk about the bungee ropes in a second. Uh, that uh, so in AFM technology development that must be super high tech and sort of the best optical tables and stuff like this vibration isolations. And then I realized the first prototypes of the AFMs in, in Paul's lab were made of wood, right? <laughs> Cantilevers made of uh, golf clubs, uh, shafts, and stuff like this. And um, <clears throat> then learned relatively quickly that sort of bungee rope isolation from the roof or from the ceiling of the room is one of the best things you can do actually in terms of vibration isolation. And so, so that that um, sort of sort of determined how <laughs> the lab is operating nowadays as well. So do do a little bit of stuff quick and dirty in the beginning, and then figure out where you need to be careful. In the end. It, it's it doesn't look the tidiest of labs. Yes, I'm not <laughs> not my call to comment on this, but uh, it, it is not. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is so that's obviously when you're over there. What's your lab like? Is your lab tidy? Is it messy? It changes every now and so often, and uh, so uh, it's it it's at, at times it's messy, and then I got I get really upset and say let's do a, a spring clean or something like this. But I, I would say it's um, more on the tidy side. Well, yeah. So, and yourself at home, you're a messy person. I'm looking behind you in your office. You're a tidy person, aren't you? It's relatively tidy. So I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed with tidiness in some places and in others I'm not, right? So it's I'm <laughs> coming back to this top gear analogy, right? So one of the hosts back in the day was well, is James May, right? Yeah. And he's sort of uh, has this OCD where I say, so he, he always likes to have the air vents in his car pointed in the same direction. And I'm exactly the same. <clears throat> So if someone moves them, I get really angry. <laughs> but those are only the little things. No? <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting. So I'd never say his hair was well kept. That's correct, actually. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> if, if there would be earlier pictures from me, which I haven't sent, uh, so now the hair is gone. But in earlier days, it looked like James, James's hair. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you'd sent those pictures now. <laughs> oh, <be> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking yeah. of. The back back to the lab, train staff. What do you do outside of? Yeah. So um, I mean, back in the day, um, I'm, I'm sort of really keen on uh, orchestral music. So I learned to play the uh, clarinet back in the day uh, as a, as a kid, and so that I actually that passion I share with Petra Schwill. <laughs> Although Petra um, plays much more instruments than I do, but I'm. I'm Maybe better at the clarinet, we'll see. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, There's a challenge. I haven't done it. I haven't done it in a long time. But um, I mean, outside, I start. I picked up. I picked up sailing in Santa Barbara. Actually, also something I thought I would never do, right? But I, re I was really getting and uh, uh, enjoyed that. I had it. So that's actually. <laughs> so that's that the second picture for this. So there's one with an outboard grill that you had beforehand. But we can have a look at that later on. Yes. So this was Catalina Islands. So in sort of off the coast of, of, of Southern California. And you can tell, <laughs> I had this sort of discussion with a former PhD student yesterday. You can tell that this is a US boat because it had an outside barbecue grill on it, right? <laughs> so I really liked this sort of laid back atmosphere in California back in the day. They could just rent a boat. You didn't need a license or something like this, right? You just could hop in and can go and say, okay, 10, 10 bucks an hour or something like this. You could rent a sailing boat. And we did that every most, most every Wednesday. So there's something that was called a wet Wednesday regatta in Santa Barbara, and we, we took place in this sort of often. <laughs> yeah, and it's really, I mean, 
the weather is nice enough that you can sail with flip-flops, right? So that's, I can totally relate to this. <laughs> and then back in Germany, I thought I called up, uh, then doing my uh, PhD, and that's the next picture that you had on before with the, yeah, with the hat on. I called my uh, best friend from school and said, how, why don't we go and, and, and get, make, a, make a sailing course and get a sailing license to actually be legally allowed to rent a boat in Germany, right? And we thought, let's do that. So we went to the Baltic Sea and it was freaking cold, right? It was in September. <laughs> but this is not sailing how I remember it, right? So, and that's that usually what happens, right? So we get into things where we say, okay, let's, let's go on a recreational sailing trip. And we realize it's one week of really learning all the basics at night, sort of doing tests and stuff like this to pass the exam. And then, um, but uh, I, I do in fact have an open sea sailing license. So uh, you, can, you can take it to the, over the Atlantic, if you want. Not that I'm ever going to do that, but <laughs> in theory. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it just sounds, yeah, no, cold, no. I can see maybe the attraction in the US. Yeah, and then the problem is in Bavaria also, there's no sea, right? There's, um, there are a few lakes and people are always arguing, ah, Lake Starnberg, it's so nice to go sailing, but it just isn't right. There's no wind. <laughs> um, so, but no, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think if you did inland sailing in the UK, there's usually wind. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's not usually a big problem. You mentioned uh, the clarinetum against Petra. I, I remember when I did the podcast with Petra and just the sheer number of different, very different instruments. That That's impressive. And her family oh. played as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so if your family, oh no, your family are too young, I guess. Uh, yeah, so, um, anything yet. so the kids not, yeah. And so I also had this sort of uh, discussion with my wife that we're not going to preoccupy them with sort of anything that we think they should do. So they, <laughs> I always said that I want to learn another instrument together with my kids, but maybe I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do that separately, right? I have always been a big fan of the French horn. I've never played it. I've never learned how to play it, but... I'm obviously also a Bond movie fan and sort of you might realize okay, there's trumpets in sort of uh, theme songs from Bond, but there's also really a lot of French horn stuff and I, I can totally relate to that. So maybe at some point this will happen. Yeah. <laughs> does your wife play any musical instruments? She does and I, unfortunately I actually do not know the English word for that, but in German it's Hackbrett. <laughs> and it's this little thing of strings where you have uh, um, sort of, there's also something in, 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 in some of the um, Pink Floyd songs where that's actually used, but it's a tri more traditional instrument, I would say, and I'm always make make fun that uh, we, we cannot play together because it's too traditional for me. But that's that's not true. I just need to write to find arrangements to um, to do that uh, together. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm looking forward to the next conference where yourself and Petra uh, have a payoff <laughs> on the clarinet. Oh, now I said something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that would be maybe Elmy. Elmy always has the uh, has the dance, doesn't it, in the evening? Dance where it's more of a, <laughs> That's pop, true, yeah. pop, pop, a crazy dancing. I, I would argue for some of that, but quite often at the start, I mean, we've had Jan Pale come up and sing. We've had uh, all sorts of different interactions and participation. That would be rather different if you and Petra actually had a <laughs> clarinet off. Is that what it'd be called? <laughs> Play off between yeah. the two of you. Ah, not playoff, yeah, but yeah, so one duet, right? So one would do that. Yeah. <laughs> you're really saying actually you don't want to lose. Ah, uh, no, that's fine. I know that I will, but um, uh, <laughs> I, I need to. Okay, I need to go and practice now. <laughs> no. 
So actually, you said what, you know, you, you've ended up doing what you wanted to do. You know, it's, you were the MacGyver of science or microscopy, <laughs> inventing new tools, new, new solutions. <clears throat> today, if you could be anything today, what would you be? So I think if I would study again, I would probably do the same thing, but I would nowadays, times have changed, obviously, but I started in, 20, in 2001, my studies. Uh, I would probably go into data science nowadays, I guess, um, because we're all, also venturing a little bit into more data science type applications for microscopy, which is sort of up and coming a lot, right? And I think they are very useful tools to be explored but I would want to understand better how the core techniques evolved in artificial intelligence, for example, or machine learning, if you want, right? So probably data science would be what I would do today. Yeah. So do you think you'll move your lab in that direction then? Uh, maybe not completely, but partly maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's actually a very good point. That's obviously diversifying your research. Mm. Yeah. How important do you think that is to always be not, not going down the same path, actually stepping outside and trying other crops in other fields, I guess. I think nice it's point. very important. I think it's important in the sense to keep a feeling of what is really useful for your own research, right? And I think machine learning approaches is a good example for this, right? Where you say, okay, I mean, we're doing this DNA barcoded um, uh, the DNA barcoded microscopy, right? And uh, so one of the part pieces of this is that it's able to do multiplexing relatively easily. So looking at many, many molecular components at the same time, but you, if you as a visual human, if you look at the pictures and you have more than three colors in there, it's really hard to make sense of the data, right? If you now say, okay, maybe you have a, a 30 plex image of a cell or something like this at some point, maybe that will happen, right? Uh, there's no way you can correlate anything, right? And so I think um, sort of computer vision, it's not really, but machine learning uh, type approaches are really useful in, in, that, in that direction. And the other thing I'm always keen on learning is uh, new biological applications. And that's actually why I'm super happy that the lab started um, physically here at the Max Planck for biochemistry, because there are so many cell biology, biochemistry and, and biology groups around that have questions and applications where you could directly apply sort of the techniques that, that we develop in the lab. And so I'm learning new things every week, basically, right? From <laughs> early zygotic gene activation to um, uh, neurodegenerative diseases uh, and so on and so forth. So I think being open, and I'm not saying again um, that I'm gonna be an expert in one of those fields because I'm not gonna be, right? I'm not a biologist by training but knowing enough about these subjects to figure out where are the big questions and where could a technology development group like us make a contribution, that always gets me excited, right? <laughs> so you are a very upbeat, positive person, uh, but if you reflect back, what has been the most difficult challenges you've had? What's the most difficult times mm. uh, in, the in your research career? So the most, you could say, difficult or frightening times was really the start of my postdoc in Boston, because what happened at the end of my PhD, and I, I have not told that to many people, but uh, sort of the DNA paint stuff didn't work anymore. So, and I didn't, we didn't realize 
at, at the point what was the issue. So we, not, we, we didn't get the surfaces right anymore. There was no sort of transient DNA binding and blinking in the images anymore. And I went to the US starting a postdoc position <laughs> with the feeling that, uh oh, <laughs> this doesn't work uh, anymore. So I, and I, and I don't know why, right? And so this was really a sort of an un <laughs> sort of an unnice feeling if you want, right? And so um, then what really sort of uh, solved that issue the day on, um, was uh, that it apparently were some of the components uh, from um, streptavidin that we used for to immobilize structures on a, on a glass surface where the manufacturer has changed some sort in the way that they produced it. A different lot didn't do the trick anymore as it did, as it usually does, right? <laughs> and um, so, so teaming up with a really fantastic biochemist, uh, Chen Shan Ling, then in, in, in the United States, sort of solved that issue then relatively quickly again. So that sort of, uh, <laughs> I felt like an imposter almost, right? So coming here, saying, okay, we're going to do this single molecule fluorescent stuff here with, with all sorts of applications. And I knew it didn't work at this point. <laughs> But um, thankfully, that was that was that was over. Yeah. And, um, I think that's a, actually something else that to, to, to I'm a biochemist by training myself and you know recording each batch number, especially because of the chemists that were in the lab at the time. You know, every, everything you do, every time you have a different one of the chemicals you use, you always know to the batch number. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's remarkable, isn't it? Why are that? these are big companies manufacturing the same thing day in day out? At, you know hydrate mm -hmm. and yet a batch can be wrong or change and, and that's crazy isn't it that that can happen it's something incomprehensible for a physicist right <laughs> you think of it. it's incomprehensible for most of us <laughs> uh, but the importance of having those batch numbers so you could actually look back and find that there was something subtly different at that point mm -hmm. and, and where the change occurred yeah i i I do wonder even today how many people in different labs are still keeping up that. How many of your lab write down the batch numbers in their lab books when they're? <laughs> That's a good question. I should check that. Uh, not that many, for most likely, but no, not, I, okay. so we you know. Uh, so my, my people are actually relatively good in, in keeping lab books. So we have an electronic lab book system. So it's a wiki system <laughs> where I think it's the the, the, the best feature of that is that you can actually search your netbook. And so back in my PhD, I didn't have that. And it was always terrible to find anything in this thing, right? And so, so that I think that has improved things a lot. Yeah. Coming back to your question there, what was, where was this other valley of tears, so to say, in my, in my career? I wouldn't say necessarily that it was a valley of tears in the end, but it was a time of sort of personal uncertainty in that sense that the position that I started here in, in Germany was a non-tenure track position, right? So it was actually funded by the German Research Foundation, the DFG, called an Emmy Noether uh, program, which sort of gives um, sort of young research groups early independence for five years. And that program is really great because you can do whatever you want in these five years, sort of apply for the money, you get a yeah. decent startup package. But there's no clear path for tenure associated with this. And so that made me nervous a little bit in the beginning, I can say. Um, but then I was, um, it, uh, I mean, together with the ERC starting grant, then um, came a position at the university that sort of had a long-term perspective associated with this. So I think this is probably one of the 
the biggest downsides of a science career if you want a sort of this relatively long uncertainty uh, before it's figured out <laughs> or not. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of a lot of people outside of science probably don't appreciate within the academic realm that there is that you have PhDs and you don't know if you'll be a postdoc after and, and there's all these career choice moments and then but once you're in a postdoc you know it's either into the academic career or you're going to go possibly into industry or completely something different but that's a big step time that that's your career point change and I guess for a lot in science and academia that's quite a late point in life to jump into a career yeah as you say a fellowship is a five-year commitment so in the UK we call it a fellowship mm -hmm. you jump in and there's no guarantee at the end of that but it's a very big a you're backed with a lot of money one or two million pounds to, to do something amazing but if that something amazing doesn't come about imagine if it was a dna if, if that streptavidin that batch <laughs> it could have flawed yeah that sort of minor problem could floor a fellowship and then their career falls off a cliff mm. and they kind of back to where they were five years ago and have to find something uh, it's a difficult world and it, of course not everyone can become an academic leader like yourself because the numbers coming through it gets fewer and fewer and fewer and, and there's a limited number of places at the end it's a big it's a big incentive to do well in those five years no i think it's a it's a bit of pressure right but it's i could you maybe could say you could turn it into a positive pressure so if you really do what you like right and that's always what i did for most of the time right that's what i did um it's going to work out one way or, or another. And I think sort of these things start to improve, right? There, there are more tenure track systems or uh, positions also in Germany nowadays, but um, there's still a way to go until this is sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but again, you are a very positive minded person. And do you think that helps being very positive minded? And... Uh, yes, I think it does. And so uh, to the avail that uh, my immediate uh, uh, vicinity of people, my wife, for example, says, okay, so you're blindly optimistic sometimes, right? And um, I think that's true. Um, but this has uh, saved me a lot of times, right? Where things in the end turned out as they have, right? And it was okay. Um, but I generally tend to keep a good portion of optimism. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's really healthy uh, okay so quick fire questions mm -hmm. uh, are you a chilled person or an intense person uh i would say mostly chilled intense when i'm really excited about a thing then i want to know what it what it is in the end right so it's uh, also been in, in, in my PhD. So then it's usually the Friday afternoons when things start to work in the lab. And I remembered my PhD advisor said, do not go home because <clears throat> you will never get it to work again to this point, right? And say, okay, because I thought, well, okay, this works now. So I come back on Monday and I do it right, right? <laughs> and so um, I, I did that a few times and, it, and it, it, I didn't get it right. <laughs> and so at the point where things started to work Friday evening, just stayed and worked through the night and that was yeah, the way the to do it. <laughs> so, PC or Mac? Uh, Macintosh, yeah. <laughs> McDonald's or Burger King? Uh, McDonald's. <laughs> Germany or US? Uh, Germany. 
that's probably a wise answer being as you're working in Germany right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that also helped in the sense that seeing another from an academic point of view, but also from a personal life point of view, seeing a different environment is really healthy and really important. Because not everything is better in the United States, not everything is better in Germany, right? So you need uh, the, the importance is to figure out for you, and that's different for, for other people, most likely, what sort of better thing do you take back and implement in your own scientific lab, but also in your life. And I think that's that was really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? Say again? Early bird or night owl? Oh, night owl, for sure. Yeah. Tea or coffee? Coffee. <laughs> yeah, cheers. <laughs> uh, chocolate or cheese? Uh, chocolate. Oh, good man. Uh, beer <laughs> or wine? Oh, wine. And that has uh, actually created issues in Bavaria. I mean, I, I don't drink beer at all. <laughs> and so my fellow PhD friends uh, at, the, at the university here in Munich then said, oh, you're never going to get into the inner circles of anything if you don't bring, drink beer in Bavaria. <laughs> I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, because I'm from a region in Germany, but that's the wine region, right? So um, Moselle and stuff like this. But um, it's, uh, it was OK in the end. But uh, it's wine, yeah. <laughs> White or red? Uh, red. You're not mostly. Well, what's the local wines? Are they mostly whites or reds? Uh, Riesling is very famous, yeah. um, uh, but it depends a little bit, right? So um, I think that they're, they're good and bad for for, for both things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I've already asked you if you're a messy or a neat person. What's your favourite food? My favourite food is steak. <laughs> Although I do, I, I, I do it very sort of seldomly, right? And that's the one of the only things I do tend to prepare myself at home <laughs> on the little sort of grill on the terrace and stuff like this. But um, yeah. Okay, I, I have to ask: Is there a favorite cut of steak? Uh, sirloin. Um, I like a lot. Ribeye. You got it. Ribeye is better, isn't it? Mm, I'm not such a. That is a the, the fatty things I don't really like that. Mm. <laughs> it's, 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 but you got the it, it's more tender. I can I can see the, I can see the appeal for it, but it's, it's not for me. <laughs> What's your least favorite food? If you were to go on a conference and you were to be taken out as a keynote speaker, they take you out for dinner. Quite often, it's a set menu somewhere really swish, and okay, somebody no. comes in front of you and you go, "Oh no, <laughs> uh, I don't like duck." Um, okay, that's uh, yeah. You'd walk out to the duck if it was on yeah. the menu. Or anything that's more exotic in the sense. I'm, just, I'm usually a very cautious person, person when it comes to sort of <laughs> things. Yeah. Uh, what would you choose, book or TV? Um, depends on what, but most of the times nowadays, I would say TV or YouTube, actually, for the matter of fact. But um, okay. for educational purposes, and so, because I, I said before, right, I'm, I'm, I'm a petrol hat so i really like car track and uh sort of the usual youtube suspects in that in that uh in that sense yeah. I, I don't know what the usual sub usual suspects are for youtube and petrol heads <laughs> uh the usual suspects um, um, Hoobie's garage um dr miro um 
yeah, and so on and so forth. So <laughs> I'm not going to say many more because it's going to be embarrassing at some point. <laughs> well, usually I do ask, what is your TV vice? In this case, what is your YouTube vice? Go on, yeah, what's, your, yeah. what's the worst, tackiest or most embarrassing one that you actually stream or watch? Oh, um, I would say the most embarrassing... I mean, again, I'm a kid of the 80s, right? Also in terms of my music taste. And this was sort of also predetermined by my sister who's nine years older. So when I grew up, she, um, I always sort of co-listened to like Depeche Mode and likes, right? So that sort of primed my music taste for the better or worse. <laughs> uh, and also for TV series, I think, um, I mean, watching Knight Rider nowadays is probably embarrassing enough for this, but I'm, I'm really also a big fan of Star Trek. Uh, so Jean-Luc Picard, Star Trek, so next yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I have to test so the, okay, the books. I have the technical handbooks of the Star Trek Enterprise uh, 171E. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those who are listening, my look then was full of one of uh, actually, my sister's also, uh, I think, 10 years older. And so actually, Abba, Elvis, <laughs> was certainly, it's always brings you back to listen. Actually, listening to my sister's vinyl records on my brother's stereo, a hi-fi. <laughs> so it's, yeah, they're, they're, I think, yeah, they always have, a good, I think, a positive influence. Never a negative, certainly never a negative influence. That's for sure, yeah. Uh, I, I can't believe you have those books. So, yeah, I take it you're a Star Trek fan over a Star Wars fan. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> what's your, uh, this is an odd question, but what's your favourite item of clothing? Favourite item of clothing? Um, that's, an, that's, a, that's an interesting question to think about this now. Uh, so I would say in the summer, it's flip-flops because I'm a, I'm a very casual person in the sense that I, and that's what I like to live in, uh, uh, what I liked about to live in, in Santa Barbara is you never need to think about what you wear, right? Do I need a hat? Do I need a coat today? No, you're not. It's going to be 20 degrees centigrade. It's going to be sunshine outside. It's every day the same. <laughs> so you just pick Sort of a, a thing of the same type of clothes every day <laughs> so that's um that that would be heaven right so if you would transform southern california in terms of lifestyle and weather to southern bavaria i would be totally fine yeah. would you not miss the seasons no for, for sure not i'm not no. a winter person i hate being cold right <laughs> i cannot no I, I think that's not completely true obviously but i could perfectly live in late spring, early summer climate. Um, not a problem at all. Yeah, and, and you mentioned, so the, the next bit was your OCD. Ah, yes. What, is, this, uh, is this one of your worst habits? One of my worst habits is that, uh, as, as I said before, right, so in the car, right, air vents pointing in the same direction. If people move it, air vents are not there to direct the stream of air where you want it. They are there to be exactly the same, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, other things I can't stand is if people touch my screen with their fingers, I get oh. mad. And so <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's even so bad that I cannot stand it when people do it on their own computers. I always get, ah, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm utterly with you. And some people have also got more oily fingers than others. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like, yes, no, yes, I agree. And, and the touch screen in the car. Mm -hmm. you know, the touch screen, it's, it's like, oh, I, yeah, my duster lives just next to me so I can clean it off. Yeah, no, no, that's true. I mean, I also have to. Uh, so my, my wife is the complete opposite, right? I'm a tech 
uh, sort of nerd, to, so to say, and my wife sort of uh, opposes everything that's technology as much as possible, right? So it's a very, very interesting conversations at home, you can imagine, right? <laughs> that um, she would rather want to have a car that has no electric windows, nothing, right? And, uh, I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> no. So who cooks at home? My wife does, yeah. And is she the better cook? Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I just wonder if she, I guess you had to say that. If she listens to this back, you had to say that anyway. She might, actually, but no, that's pretty sure. I mean, we would probably starve to death if I, want, if I would take over the control of the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it was steak. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then do you get anything with the steak if you're cooking? Or actually, do you cook the steak and then your wife cooks the sides? Most of it, yeah. So the, the, the healthy things come from her side. Yeah. <laughs> and you have two children now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, how old are they? The oldest one is going to be four in March, so very soon, and the little one is seven months. So he just wow. started to started to crawl up things and stand, uh, and so much to the amusement of the older one because nothing is safe now anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Boys, girls. Uh, two boys. Yeah. Boys. Yeah, I have three boys, so <laughs> we've got to catch up. In, in, in that sense, that's true. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, it, uh, the useful thing is my sister. So my older sister has has three boys as well, and so <laughs> they inherited now a lot of lots of the things from their cousins, right? So for, for better or worse, yeah, which is always useful. Uh, back back onto more work related things. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I don't know if I've asked this of anyone. What is your favorite conference? My favorite conference has for a long time always been the foundations for nanoscience, F-Nano. So it's a little sort of less known conference in, 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 uh, outside of DNA nanotech, but it always takes place in Snowbird in the US, which is sort of a ski resort outside of Salt Lake City in Utah. So, so that, I, that I really like. From the, um, from the imaging side, it's for sure seeing is believing uh, at Ambo. Because, because I think that, that captures both uh, technology development, but also application sites really well. And so that, that's, that's one of my favorite conferences. So. You, meant, you mentioned the nano one to start with, and it being a small meeting. So is that mm -hmm. the networking or the content within it? Uh, I think it's partly the content, but mainly the networking, I guess. You, um, they're not that, I mean, nowadays, obviously not that many conferences I go to. I mean, I haven't been to a conference in person for the last two and a half years, like many of us have. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so if I could, if I, needed, if I needed to choose two, that those would be the two, yeah. You going to any this year? Uh, not planned yet, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, Elm is coming up, so that, that's, uh, I think that's the only one physical one that I've actually definitely firmly in so there. that would for sure be nice to uh, to see faces again, not on the computer screen at some point. <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for computers. And I think some of the virtual meetings have been terrific, but I think it lives off ex existing networks to an extent. And it's quite hard to really get to know a person. And I think that's- well, I think that's actually very true. And I had this discussion with a former PhD student of mine uh, uh, over, over the, uh, the last um, weeks is that for people at transition points in their career, it's really a bad time, right? Um, to say, okay, you need to network at the end of your postdoc to get to know people in the field, right? To figure out where would be your next, uh, your next position and things like this. And 
having all virtual all meetings virtual um, is okay to some extent, but the networking aspect and sort of the coffee chat aspects of things completely sort of lack in that sense. Um, but I will hope. I mean, I hope it will get better again very soon. I think, of course, I think it. I think it will. I. I I, I, we are very close to the hour, Mark. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, what is your favourite publication that you've authored or co-authored or co-authored? For whatever oh, reason. Okay. So, uh, let me think a little bit about it. I can give you two. How's that? Two. Two is fine, yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's the, the Nano Letters 2010 paper, uh, for sure. So that's the original DNA paint paper from, from my PhD. So because most of the data, and I tell you why, I think it's my favorite, one of my favorite publications of me. First of all, I've, I've done the experiments and written a paper together with Christian and stuff like this. But all of the experiment in that paper are mainly from one measure night. <laughs> so it was one of those days where we say, okay, now this works, let's do it, right? Let's go in and record as many data as possible. And most of the things are from, from one, one measurement. Wow, so that, that um, sounds like a, the end of a Friday, it's working, carry on and got a whole bunch yeah, of And so, so, so Christian basically slept over in my apartment uh, because it was close to the university and he was living outside of Munich uh, at, at the time. So yeah, that was, that was really good. And then the, the other thing that this is sort of similarly is the 2014 uh, paper from my postdoc um, where we introduced this sort of exchange uh, paint idea with the sort of the, the, the figure that sticks with this paper is the 10 digits, right? So the numbers on the, on the origami. That's a similar measurement night <laughs> associated to that. Yeah. And have you had any key inspirations in your life, whether it be scientific or personal? You know, who's inspired you in your career? So the key inspiration to actually move into single molecule microscopy further than I did already in my PhD was really a video. Uh, so, so the nature methods of the year 2008, uh, super resolution microscopy, right? And so I listened to Jennifer Lippincott Schwartz and Jawe Zhuang, Stefan Hell uh, about this. And sort of, I, I rewatched that <laughs> video through the night in the, in the summer before my, my postdoc started. And I thought this is really, um, what I want to do in the future, right? And so this was um, that 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 inspiration for sure. Yeah. So back to YouTube again, almost. Almost, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly online watching. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> Ralph, we are up to the hour, and I, I, I think I usually ask sort of finally, you know, where do you think science is going? Mm. Uh, but I think you probably already mentioned that the big data or data science. Data, data science would be a big part for sure. I think I'm, but that's personally sort of preoccupied in the sense that I think combining sort of omics techniques with imaging in the future is something I'm really excited about, right? So multi-omics to, to that extent. Um, and I think the techniques and the microscopy techniques have developed so far over the last year. I mean, Nobel Prize and stuff like this, obviously, but also after that, that you're really at the point where you can say, okay, now you can actually use the tools to answer questions in biology that have not been possible before. So, so put them to use, I think, and then <laughs> we'll be exciting. That's cool. Uh, and a good, a good point to end on. Ralph, uh, the MacGyver of microscopy, Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got to get that name to stick. 
thank you very much if, if you've enjoyed listening today don't forget to subscribe to whichever channel you're doing and actually you've heard about petra uh jennifer eric and the likes of this podcast with them as well so do go back and look but ralph thank you very much for today thanks peter talk to you soon thank you for listening to the microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by zeiss microscopy to view all audio and video recordings from this series please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists